So I'm here with Heather Potters. Uh, she is the owner of PharmaJet. And uh, I just uh, want to tell you guys, I'm very excited about this podcast. I think it's uh, extraordinary uh, what Heather's doing. Um, she uh, is in the needle-free syringe vaccine space. Uh, so f correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but why don't you tell me a little bit about your company and about kind of your early beginnings? You bet. Um, well, the, the official category is needle-free jet injection. That's okay, because I, I talk about this all day, every day. <laughs> we, we create a really fast fluid injection that goes into the body. In fact, it's um, in less than 10th of a second that it's delivered, and that's faster than your nervous system responds. So we are a, a great alternative to needles. Um, in fact, we, we've always aimed to be kind of the safer alternative and not that we'll replace needles forever um, or in every place, but there's some really nifty things that we can do. So just going back into history a little bit, part of the reason why we, we um, started PharmaJet was to really address the global need for immunization. And um, I've got in my mind's eye like this slide that says, duh, you know, <laughs> didn't you always know that immunization and health and therefore economic health, you know, were linked. And so we find ourselves in this really wonderfully interesting place where we have layers of regulatory approvals, layers of clinical studies and partnerships and global, um, you know, kind of um, approaches to, to immunization. And then we've arrived at um, a number of really exciting potential coronavirus solutions. So um, vaccines are us. That's what you're talking So tell me what excited, what, what uh, interested you about getting into this space? Well, you know, if, if you have traveled at all, you know, you realize that um, we're all sharing disease in a sense that you get on an airplane, you take a trip. It doesn't matter, frankly, if it's the next state over, or if it's the next country or around the world. The World Health Organization at one time utilized a needle-free technology. It was actually developed here in the U.S. in the 1950s and 60s. And right. it looked a little bit like a machine gun, very scary. But that metal tip, you know, on, on the end of the injector went from person to person and contributed pathogens. So yeah. even though they used it for hundreds of millions of doses of immunizations, um, brought the disease burden down, it was ultimately banned from use. And then the WHO noticed a lot of needle reuse and actually had a call to order. So we rose to that occasion. And thinking about immunization, you know, market growing in perpetuity, never going to stop. The number of children born every year is about 140 million right now. and. Wow. And then there was always this idea that there was going to be a potential pandemic, you know, right around the corner. And there have been some over, you know, the last several decades, about more, actually about a hundred years ago <laughs> was yeah. the, uh, you know, um, Spanish flu um, uh, pandemic. But we designed our product to address not only kind of standard of care immunizations, because it was uh, a need that, that we all have because we're all trying to stay healthy, but also to really address the safety issue. So we've accomplished that and, and that's why we continue to, to try and focus in on vaccine administration. Got it. Uh, with the, the device you just talked about, was the main issue with sterilization or was it? Yeah, you know, it, it was one metal fluid path for that injector. 
Right. And I, I like to use the, the analogy of you know driving cars forever. And today we, we have the hybrid. Um, the older technology, while it was very effective from an efficiency standpoint, lots of injections, it was a pneumatic force. And then that metal tip went from person to person. And that's why they, they banned it globally. But the way in which we've approached our technology is that it's spring force, no external power source, and, and we have the springs wound for a very specific peak of velocity, and then it, it gets wound off so that it's comfortable for the patient, but it also reaches the target tissue. And we can do some cool things uh, because of the way in which we, we um, essentially engineer the injection to reach specific target tissues, whether or not it's the muscle or it's the skin. Yeah. Can you explain like the, how deep uh, your, your device goes? So um, the, we had to prove that we were the same as or better than predicate. So, you know, in terms yeah. of a needle going into the muscle, it tends to be about 18 to 22 millimeters of depth to get into the muscle. We, we started with, um, frankly, preclinical um, pig studies and then gel ballistics. And then eventually on a clinical basis, we were able to test, including people who were morbidly obese, and, and all of those patients seroconverted. So consequently, we know that for those vaccines that are destined for the muscle, we reach the muscle. Similarly, with the intradermal space, we had to work in small animal models initially, and so dialing down the force and the volume to, to be able to you know, inject a, a small mouse allowed us to frankly stumble upon being able to inject into a one and a half to three millimeter space of dermal tissue. And we do that really well, but that's where the body's immune response largely comes from. And so consequently, functionally, about 80% less injected into the skin can often generate the same immune response as a full dose into the muscle. This seems like such a uh, huge undertaking. Did you feel like overwhelmed at any point, like during the process? <laughs> like. And did you have any skeptics, any, anyone that was like, just didn't believe that this would work? Oh, absolutely. You know, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, my, my mother and I are co-founders and, and we have, you know, that same genetic code of we'll show you. Uh, <laughs> so many people said, yeah, can't meet, meet, reach the muscle, you know, just too difficult. You can't engineer that. Um, other people said, why would you be interested in vaccines? Because vaccines are so sleepy, you know, and there were a few people that were trying to create a needle-free technology for really high-end drug delivery. And yeah. that's fine. We, we don't do that. Our view was, if we're able to have a tremendously high volume of, of shots, we can therefore build something that has a low cost and can basically produce a sustainable business model at a, you know, a lower margin. So um, the, the annual immunization market prior to, to you know, the early part of this year was estimated to be somewhere between 2.5 and 3 billion annual immunizations. And arguably we're gonna double that um, with the coronavirus solution. But, the, the vaccine space is something that we focused on while everyone else did other things. And the naysayers, or maybe sometimes people who put roadblocks in our way. Um, yeah. You know, have you ever uh, come across anti-vaxxers, <laughs> anti like people that? Yeah, sure. And, and I, I truly believe that, you know, it's people's 
right to choose, but the scientific evidence is so stunning around certain things. Yeah. We just take for granted this clean environment, um, maybe not anymore, right? That now that the coronavirus is circulating and you're afraid that you've touched something, et cetera. But there are certain uh, diseases where um, they're highly contagious. And if you are not immunized, you will in all likelihood contract that disease. So measles is 90% contagious. Polio would be 95% contagious. And because many of these vaccines have been standard of care for a long time, the average you know, health of the population is pretty high. But when these immunization programs stop, frankly, disease incidence starts again. And um, many, many of these things would be um, really lethal if you were not able to get to proper emergency room care or, or, or you know, your, your physician. So in the rest of the world, the, you know, the, the poorest of the countries with challenging living conditions, um, people are very concerned about having immunizations because it's, it's really important to them versus when everything seems to be just fine. Yeah. You're forgetting about the fact that because the average population is immunized, therefore people are healthy. What do you think is the impetus behind the anti-vaccine movement? I, I know you probably don't want to talk about this too much, but it just we I, I always have to feel I, I always feel we have to address this because if we if we just ignore it, I think people are thinking it, and we just have to address the the big elephant in the room. But why, why do you what do you what do you think the the impetus is behind the, the movement? Well, there was a, a a gentleman, a physician who since lost his license out of the UK who studied about 30 patients and he came up with an idea that there was a correlation with measles immunizations and autism. Yeah. And he has since discredited, but I think that in people's minds, um, the, the notion of, of keeping their children safe, their, their newborns safe, etc. No one would ever want to choose something to, to hurt their babies. Yeah. Um, I know quite a lot about the science related to autism. Um, I'm, a, I'm a small active angel investor besides my PharmaJet day job. Yeah. And one of the things that I've invested in is a company called CureMark. And they have studied, um, they've actually created essentially uh, an enzyme that is very effective in reigniting the brain for autistic children. Really? They've discovered that there's a massive correlation where babies, when, when everybody's born, you're producing tons of serotonin levels. Yeah. You get to the age of about two, and the average would be is that over a period of time, the serotonin levels come down in all yeah. human beings. But for children with autism, it, it stops immediately. And, and what people end up thinking is, oh my gosh, I just had the, the you know, my, my child just had their set of immunizations. So I think there's some concern that, that you know, if, if you have your child immunized and then all of a sudden they're not okay, you draw that, that correlation erroneously. Um, there, the CDC in the United States um, very intensely reviews, in, in addition to the FDA, um, vaccine protocols as well as clinical studies to be able to opine on safety and efficacy for, for yeah. the population. So these vaccines that are kind of standard of care have been around for years and years and years and years. And I think I, I think it's important to address that there are, you know, some vaccines do cause some do cause in some situations adverse effects, but 
the, the analogy I like to use is it's like there's, there's been studies sh showing that some, some types of airbags kill people. Doesn't mean we shouldn't include the airbags in our cars. Great analogy. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, overall society is protected overall with vaccines. And if we just take them away, it's not a good idea. <laughs> like there's, there's, we, I think we've forgotten uh, the pandemics that spread across the world. Um, and, uh, and I think it's, it's easy in, a, in an easy time, easier time um, to forget about those things. Um, but so one thing you mentioned was really important. I think you said that there's about th 3 billion immunizations or 3 billion people a year that get immunizations. But what about the other 3 billion? Are, like, are there countries that just don't get uh, many vaccines and because of that, a lot of disease spreads? Uh, a, a little bit in part. So um, as adults, we don't typically go off and have um, multiple vaccines on a frequent basis. Every right. once in a while, there might be a booster shot for something. And if you get your annual flu shot, that, that would accommodate um, you know, a certain number of those, those immunizations. But it's actually the birth cohort of 140 million children times the vaccines that they receive gets okay. to that kind of 3 billion got it, got number, it. right? That makes sense. You have to 3 billion number. So it's, it's kind of a standard six in the, the poorest of countries and then 13 immunizations in places like the United States. So um, it, it's a uh, kind of standard of care, but there is a certain kind of trade-off where it becomes really expensive. So there is a, a group, uh, an NGO called GABI, which stands for Global Alliance Vaccine Initiative, that largely funds and subsidizes vaccine programs for countries to, to kind of get out of the gate and make it a standard in their country. And GABI's been in existence uh, probably for at least 15 years, uh, maybe a little bit longer. And um, they have 74 member countries. So we collaborate, for instance, in the Polio Eradication Initiative um, with GABI. And as these countries are able to kind of start to have healthier populations, frankly, their budgets can move so that they can afford the immunizations because what they find is people are healthy, people are at school, people are at work, the economy is functioning. Mm, makes sense, makes sense. So I think it's, it's also important to address that needles in many instances cause disease, right? Um, right? So needles cause disease. I don't think you addressed uh, maybe a little bit, but not, not enough. Um, needles cause it. So there, there's a massive uh, uh, spreads of disease because of needles uh, that are pre being right now prevented because of your, the use of your device. So can you go a little bit more into that and kind of the prevalence of disease based on needles? Yeah. You know, in the early part, when we started PharmaJet, I think the statistical range tended to be 40 to 70% reuse of needles in certain countries where wow. maybe they were inadequately disposed of in garbage dumps, um, cultivated, washed, repackaged, or in certain circumstances, people thought, you know, you just wipe them off, no big deal. Or you try and kind of sterilize them in some tepid water um, or alcohol, not a problem. But the truth is, is that up to 20 bloodborne pathogens can be contributed with a needle stick. Yeah. And statistically, in certain places, um, Africa generally, the, the prevalence of hepatitis in the community 
would be very high. So if someone is injecting and, and between the injection and the withdrawal and the disposal of a needle, I think it's something like, you know, that 65% of the risk is right concentrated in that action. So if either the patient had hepatitis, as an example, mm -hmm. or the caregiver had hepatitis, as an example, the risk of transmission is very high. And then obviously the chronic disease incidence is very costly for that person. Um, if you look at, at just the cost of getting rid of a needle, it typically is about 25 cents uh, in the US. It's hard to find statistics in other places. But, but the, while needles are standard of care and, and useful, they can be misused or mishandled and therefore it, it causes very significant uh, pass along disease costs for, for countries and, and communities and families. Right, definitely. Um, uh, but so I, what, I, what I venture is that you, your device has saved probably many, many hundreds of thousands of lives. That's what I'm guessing um, because, because of, of the way it's developed. Um, how does that make you feel that you've that your device has has done you know good for the world and has saved saved lives oh you know it's joyous it's that's our mission really um we we want to be able to do well and do good and as a kind of former private equity person i i lived and worked in in central eastern europe and invested money and when i could see that you could make a great investment but, but see something happen you know that that was yeah. Really wonderful. So same thing with respect to PharmaJet. Um, we want to make a, a dent in the disease burden. We want to help eradicate polio, as an example, which is one of right. our initiatives. Uh, we want to be able to make people who are needle phobic show up and have an immunization. And we've witnessed many, many occasions there. Um, we want to make an economic contribution. And, and our product is really efficient. So we, we capture extra doses per vial. We don't have any waste. We don't have any needle sharps. So therefore there's no extra cost of that disposal. Um, faster patient processing. And then in some cases, we're able to actually re reduce the dose by moving from the muscle to the skin. So when you start to factor in all these savings, we produce a positive ROI of savings for every single immunization back for the user. Um, yeah. So, so tell me a little bit about, I'm really interested in this. Tell me a little bit about how you're um, commercializing and what you plan on doing in the future. Um, because I, I think what, what I've gathered from you, uh, Heather, is you, you participate, uh, participated um, and were the winner of my last event. And uh, you won the event. You're obviously very sophisticated when it comes to business. You went to Wharton. I don't think you've mentioned that. I don't think you like to tell people that for whatever reason. <laughs> but... Um, uh, but, but maybe you, you should probably say it more. I'm not sure. Maybe at my conferences, you should probably say it. Um, but, uh, what, what was your commercialization strategy starting out and how do you plan on commercializing moving forward? So we're, you know, kind of in our early revenue stage where we have commercial traction channels, but, um, the, the medical device world, the, you know, it's just glacial. It's terrible. But, but when you add layers of kind of, first regulatory approvals, and then you build on that more and more and more. I think we're at a stage today where we have 42 
country registrations. We have all of our key credentials like FDA, CE, Mark, WHO. And then we have clinical claims. In some cases, we're on vaccine labels. But when we walk through the door to be able to speak to end customers, they see kind of our body of, of data and gives us instant credibility. Our commercialization channel uh, plan really is focused on large customers though. So when you think about immunization here, our mind goes to, well, we could go to our doctor's office. We could go to Walgreens, right? Yeah. The immunization channels are more discretionary. In most of the rest of the world, they are highly controlled by the ministries of health, public health channels for basic immunization. So when we approach ministries of health, we're talking to them about um, sweeping changes generally in their vaccine programs. One of our initiatives is with the um, World Health Organization, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and CDC for polio eradication. So the objective there is to move from the oral drops to the inactivated vaccine, which is 20 times more expensive. We can reduce the dose by 60%. We can get 20% more out of the vials. So our interface becomes providing a useful tool for immunization for polio that then eventually may lend itself to other intradermal applications, which could be for BCG, for tuberculosis as an example. And then there are a whole series of vaccines that we're working on to reduce the dose. We've proven that HPV vaccine, if you move from the muscle to the skin, basically produces similar immune response. Um, rabies is another example that the WHO proved. So we have a, a global channel that is highly focused on that public health channel. And then in the United States, um, we work with the US government. We have relationships with eight different agencies around vaccine development. Sometimes wow. it's for um, you know, really serious infectious disease like, like Zika, Dr. Fauci's lab. In other cases, and more recently, pandemic preparedness for influenza moved to COVID-19. So that's a channel all, all by itself around trying to make sure that we have a solution to meet the shortages of needles, the shortages of vaccines. Sure. And maybe if we can make that vaccine work better, great. And then there's that middle bucket that involves actually next generation vaccine technology. We have more than 50 partners um, from large pharma, small pharma, academic yeah. institutions around the world that are developing more than 100 injectables using our technology. And in the nucleic acid area, which is a fancy term for DNA, messenger RNA, we tend to see several immunosons. Yeah. So we, we will become a named method of administration on those labels and perhaps the only method because right. we make them work so much better than needles. So the, it's kind of like short-term, medium-term, long-term commercial strategy, very large fun funnels with very large partners, where we go down, frankly, our partners' channels so that we don't actually have to recreate all the distribution. Have you met Dr. Fauci? I've not personally met him, but um, I'm, I'm always jealous when we mail you know, our, our clinical team to other places. They get to go to <laughs> some cool places. Really? Wow. Okay. He would be um, on, my, I, on my top one list right now. <laughs> definitely. Um, so you said you're early stage. So when you meet, when you say early stage last year, do you mind sharing kind of how big your company has grown to? Sure. Um, our revenues last year were $5 million. 
Okay. So um, we we have um, sold millions I, right. of our, our you know millions of people have been injected with PharmaJet's um, technology, which is a joyous thing to say. Um, but we're our, we're we've fully scaled two device platforms, and we're needing to add capacity in in our intradermal uh, platform for polio, and likely in our our intramuscular program for uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic. I'm wondering how uh, you make your first few sales. <laughs> Those must have been very difficult. Um, and uh, and was your was the process proven? Was it medical? Was it proven at that point? Like when you first were trying to uh, kind of cajole these uh, ministries of of health to to buy your devices? Uh, you know, I, I think people are generally very curious. Um, how does that work? And oh, that seems interesting and friendly. And, and then um, it has to do, frankly, with the rigor of science and credentials. Uh, and then um, the partners that we have had very purposeful intentions. So um, being able to, to walk into a scenario where it's with the NIH or it's with the WHO or it's with a vaccine company that, that needs to use the technology is that extra factor of, of credibility. But we wouldn't be able to have those relationships had we not been able to properly engineer what we, what we designed, you know, what we intended. Got it. So um, for anyone listening, um, say uh, you, you have a medical device startup that really wants to grow and by the way, where do you see your, before I get into that, where do you see your company going in the next five years or so? <laughs> I call it the, the grand plan of global domination for immunity. <laughs> <Wow. laughs> <laughs> you, you never know how far you get. Um, but in, in all- I think you're very competitive, aren't you? <laughs> um, I, I think that we can become a standard of care for no. public immunizations. Yeah. Um, I think that we can, uh, frankly, be part of pandemic preparedness, whether or not that's influenza or COVID solution uh, during the coming five years, uh, that the globe will actually take, uh, you know, I'm going to have to turn my outlook off. Sorry, shame on me, Frank. I thought I did. All good. The, um, the global economy will require a focus on immunization to, to make sure that people sure. are healthy and productive. So there's not enough stuff in the world. Um, and maybe that's frankly, you know, helpful for us, serendipitous, that there's one more need for why a needle-free technology would be further scaled um, because there's just not enough methods of administration. There are not enough vials. So consequently, we won't, again, fully replace needles, but in certain circumstances, we can be extraordinary, extraordinarily useful. And the one that I would call out that we're most proud of during our 2019 experience, um, we were invited into Karachi, Pakistan. We trained over WebEx, 50 master caregivers for a couple of hours. Those individuals during the course of one week trained 2,200 caregivers. And that third week, those caregivers working in teams of two uh, so 1,100 teams immunized 500,000 children in five days door to door. Hands wow. down, you know, logistically a, a big deal. But then it was also um, published, survey was, was issued, and there was 99% patient and caregiver preference. 
and 18% more participation. So, so consequently, we feel like we've passed all of these amazing tests to reinforce why it is that, you know, we can be a standard of care and, and really useful in so many different, you know, circumstances, whether or not it's sophisticated clinics, true to the field. Yeah. Uh, so do you, have a, do you have a sales team right now that goes out and meets with these uh, uh, ministries of health? And is yeah. that... You, you do, okay. Yeah, we, have, we have three people around the globe dedicated to certain geographies. And then we also have relationships with medical device distributors. So qualified distributors that already have established businesses where they represent medical technology. And through those channels, it just further extends our reach to be able to serve um, countries particularly well. I love that. I love it. So on, on a scale from one to 10, how competitive do you, would you say you are? <laughs> well, you know, I'm a, I'm a great team player, like flag football, you know, we're going to win. Um, <laughs> I, I think, uh, you know, when it comes to, to making sure that everybody wins here, uh, we're doing this for a basket of, you know, collective basket of everyone gets to the finish line. Yeah. And, and so I think it's, it's careful, you know, it's, it's a measured degree of, of com competition. Sure. Where, where we're not gunning for the needle companies. Yeah. Uh, maybe the other way around, not sure. But um, <laughs> what yeah. we're trying to do is to make sure that we add value in all circumstances. And the, the thing that always riles me up, you know, it's um, I don't like big balance sheets that intentionally disrupt and kill technologies before they make it to market because that's just not right. Yeah. And I think that we're in this unprecedented time where um, the antitrust laws have been relaxed so that collaboration can occur. The FDA is fast tracking things. Other governments are fast tracking developments too in, in the medical technology world, life science world. And we yeah. will find this explosion of innovation and things coming to market that might never have made it otherwise. So I am very tenacious. So back to your, how competitive are you? Um, you know, we set out to have this, this, you know, kind of grand plan of global domination for immunization for PharmaJet. Uh, and we've been at it for a while and we absolutely intend to, to be a standard of care. But I think that um, sadly, you know, many small companies just don't make it because the bar's so high and it's, it's very expensive and it requires a really capable team. So I feel very fortunate. We've had amazing investors supporting us mm -hmm. and our intention is to be just a building block for, for a bigger business because at some point, you know, it, it, it makes sense to be part of a, a, a larger, a larger company probably. Yeah. Um, um, but not quite yet. Yeah, it's it's so difficult. How, how many how many uh, lives have not been saved because of medical devices that have not been put into the market? Do you think yes. millions? Well, that that I'd be making it up if I gave you a number, but I I know obviously uh, yeah. Yeah. many examples where there are technologies that are used, frankly, standard of care in other countries, and they are not available in the United States. So a great example would be uh, Terumo BCT, Caridian BCT, before Terumo acquired them. 
is a blood plasma separation company. And they found that it was simply too hard to go through the rigor of the approvals in the United States. So they would go to Europe, they would get all their CE mark activities done, have a commercial market for a number of years before they'd ever attempt to come to the United States for their development. And they're a huge business. I, I think probably somewhere two to $5 billion in revenue. So it, it happens, unfortunately, it happens. Why do you think, uh, I don't know how much more time you have here, but um, how, what do you, why do you think that the, uh, the U.S. market is so strict? Why do you think the FDA is so strict? NIH is so strict. Yeah, you know, I, I think that there was a period of time, like in any industry, where um, it made sense to have some safety parameters installed. It made yeah. sense to, to tighten some of the rigor. Um, we don't want people, you know, going around in their wagon and selling snake oil anymore because we're not sure what's in the snake oil. Um, <clears throat> there are, um, you know, channels of, of inputs that come into products that we all consume that if you don't have the traceability <clears throat> you can't prove where it's been or how it's been made it can potentially be a problem so um, when the fda decided that it wanted to have clinical claims associated with drugs and devices um, healthcare generally um, there were some very significant fines for pharmaceutical companies that had um, really strong market traction with products that were already approved for a regulatory indication that was defined in this little box, but it was being used also for that. So the FDA got upset that they were promoting for things that they had not studied. And consequently, there is a, a requirement now to be able to have clinical claims associated with your marketing or you will be fined and shut down. Right. That stifled a tremendous amount of innovation because um, the bar is just so high that it's just not going to happen. So if we use an, an, an example where there are objectives <clears throat> that the FDA has to, to kind of bring that down a little bit, the Chinese have um, actually adopted a strategy where if you have completed a clinical study in another place, you can take that clinical study and give them the dossier and they can review it and decide if it's approved. <clears throat> so if, if you don't have to repeat an additional clinical study, that saves tons of money and tons of time. And after this was instilled in China, um, largely in the last 24 months, after the first approval, which was an HPV vaccine by Merck, and I don't know if you're aware, but that's, that's the first successful anti-cancer vaccine in the world. It's 98% efficacious. It's really, you know, very important for preventing cervical cancer and things like that. Um, the review process was nine days. And shortly after that, um, the Chinese published a list of 89 drugs that they thought would be very important and helpful for their population and welcomed those manufacturers to submit dossiers for approval. So I think that's a, um, you know, a proactive solution to trying to get rid of having to repeat studies and, and spend more money. Uh, if you do a buttoned up study in a great regulatory environment that um, is peer reviewed, I, I would think that that should be sufficient evidence for certain kinds of 
of you know particularly devices, particularly non-invasive devices. So yeah. Things will change, but 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 it's going to take some more time, and that's frustrating. Uh, I'm kind of interested in uh, how did they create an uh, um, an antigen that uh, helps with the HPV vaccine. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm not a scientist, so I'm not going to you know make. I'm not a scientist either, so I'm like, but, um, yeah, I, I hope I'm saying the right things here. <laughs> you know, no, but um, over a period of time, they they took a different approach to cancer. So yeah. if you can can um, try and stimulate the immune response to create antibodies against something, that's the objective of a vaccine. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Right? Yes. Yeah. So in, in that case, they took, um, initially it was just two of the, the human papillomavirus um, variants, because there are, are, are many, many, yeah. many, like coronavirus. I think there's something like 25 coronavirus variants. Um, in HPV, they started with two, and then they went to four, and then they went to 16. So they've been able to study over a period of time that they can actually stimulate the body to produce antibodies against the virus, that particular virus causing cancer. PharmaJet's working with a group in Norway called Vaxibody, which has a post-exposure therapeutic cancer vaccine for HPV. Really? And we make that vaccine work met, you know, much, much better than needles. They actually don't use needles anymore. But what they've observed is the highest recorded immunogenicity in published literature for HPV, a big scientific claim. Yeah. And then observably, the cancer lesions disappear. So we're talking about patients who have actually manifested cancer and the cancer's going away. Wow. So it, there's a lot of, you know, time that this all takes, but there are now 16 um, oncology collaborations that we have that are doing a variety of things, whether or not it's lymphoma or lung cancer, prostate cancer, HPV, and stimulating the body's immune response, especially through the skin, to turn the, turn the immune response on, but also accessing the lymphatics, something that we do really well. So, um, Time will tell, but, but I'm very optimistic that there will be additional cancer approaches uh, where there will be types of cancers that can actually be eliminated, uh, not only prevented, but, but actually wow. eliminated. Wow. Um, that's really interesting. Okay. So um, to conclude, so uh, you're both an investor and a CEO. So, <laughs> so, from, so from the CEO's perspective, do a lot of investors correct me, do a lot of investors become CEOs if they want to help a company? Like, is that common or? Well, it's an interesting question. So I, I'm a co-founder of PharmaJet and, uh -huh. and thought I would just be chairman and look after it like, you know, all my investment portfolio, right? Um, and over a period of time, it was really obvious that PharmaJet needed my full-time attention. And the objective for me was just to make sure that we had a dynamite, very qualified medical device team and I'm part of that executive team, but one of the engineers that came to PharmaJet about 10 years ago and helped us to develop our current technology uh, is now our CEO. So um, he runs our operations uh, and I spend all the time on, on things like fundraising, business development. You know, I call myself chief advocate. Um, all of our- You're kind of co-CEOs, right? 
Kosi is? Well, you know, we all do different things. Um, and, and many, frankly, many of uh, our staff members, you know, are not very comfortable being public facing. So uh, there's a purpose for everybody, right? Uh, but my role tends to be to make sure that all of our um, investors are, are well-informed, good corporate governance. Collaborations are just like deals. Uh, so license agreements and things like that. How do we, we go out and cultivate people to work with? You can mail me anywhere and I'm comfortable globally so I can show up. <laughs> but um, I've been part of PharmaJet from the, the very beginning and I'll see it through until somebody okay. says, you know, time, time to transition PharmaJet. So what, what, what advice would you import on somebody listening, someone listening that owns a, a medical device company that wants to grow as a CEO? Um, what are the kind of the most important things that you've learned across, you know, along your journey that if you just knew, if you just knew beforehand, you know, what would be entailed, you would have done so much better or whatever the case may be, what knowledge would you like to impart upon? Um, and, and this is kind of like a broad question, but um, what would you tell someone listening that wants to get to a level that you're at and then beyond? Yeah, I, th I think um, oftentimes in early stage businesses, there's this tremendous aha, you know, an innovation happens because, you know, a, a physician discovers something. You know, how many times have you heard of, you know, in the operating room, they, they figured out how to do something better. And then that becomes a, a, a device innovation. Um, it, it takes an amazingly qualified group of people regulatory, clinical, engineering, um, finance, uh, sales and marketing to bring something through to a commercial stage. And if you're doing this all by yourself, you're in trouble because you can't be an expert in every single circumstance. No. So reaching out for really qualified help, you know, the, the best of the best, as much as that might be expensive, or to be able to utilize one of the incubators. So J&J &J is, is a great example of lots of resources and some office space in exchange for equity. Right. Um, it, it's important to get the right advice in the beginning, because if you make a mistake, as you had offered to your regulatory path, it's very expensive to fix. And, and it may be that it just becomes something that you, you decide that you can't afford to, to, to retry. So yeah. um, setting the vision um, and having experts help validate that that seems the right way to go is a really important thing. Yeah. Okay. And then as an investor, what are some tips that you would impart upon investors listening to this? <laughs> hire the right team. <laughs> hire the right team. <laughs> hire the right team. Um, there's also, you know, there's a, like a product life cycle. There's a, a team life cycle, right? You're, you're always going to need different skill bases depending upon the, the age of the, the business and the technology and the market state. Um, and then I think- You invest more in the business or the founder? Oh, for sure founder, but I, I'd say that uniquely in, um, it's not just founder, it's, it's management team. In, mm -hmm. in, in, in a place where innovation is the aha that comes from building upon what we already have, Many times scientists or, or doctors or, or some medical professional isn't necessarily skilled on the business side or the regular, regulatory side, right? Vice versa too, yeah. Vice versa. So I, I think it's about one, sound technology um, 
and science and rigor and understanding behind why that has a market opportunity. And then for sure, the team, so it's, it's not just about the founder, but it's, it's about the team and the ability to be able to successfully um, achieve some competitive barrier and get through regulatory on a reasonable basis. Because regulatory is expensive. And, yeah. and when, you, when you get there, you better have, have built the layers of yeah. the layer cake to make sure you're successful. With, with your engineers, are you strict with regards to deadlines? Because I know engineers, they have to, every, everything has to be perfect. There, there could be no mistake made. Uh, so are you, are you strict on deadlines? Because I, I feel, me personally, this is just my preference and I, I might be wrong, but I, I wouldn't put a deadline on an engineer because they just, they always have to do it right, the right way, <laughs> so. Yeah, you know, we're, we're pretty good at it now because we have, uh, you know, amazing um, Gantt charts of all day, every day execution. Once a, a plan is really buttoned down. Yeah. And, and let's pretend you're scaling and, and you know, building robotics and, and molds and things like that. Um, it's not just one engineer, it's a whole bunch of them that have decided that, that that's possible. But, you know, it's, we always have deadlines for sure, but I, I think you're right. We would rather have it be right than have it be on time. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit different engineering, you know? Yeah. Um, but, but, uh, okay. So like, what would you say to investors who are interested in potentially investing in farm and jet based on this interview? Uh, first of all, how do they get in contact with you? And you know, obviously from getting to know you a little bit, Heather, you're obviously very sophisticated with regards to how you approach things um, to a level that I, I haven't, I, it's very, it's kind of rare, uh, the level of sophistication you have. Um, I will say that, you know, out of 13 companies, uh, we had a, a kind of an event. Um, you competed against those companies. Uh, you were the only female at the uh, pitching and you beat all the, 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 the guys. <laughs> how, did you, how did you feel about that? <laughs> uh, well, that's, it's, um, it makes me smile because I grew up with brothers in a neighborhood full of boys. And most of the, you know, the schooling I had uh, were, it was, you know, dominant male population. So it's, it's, um, it makes me smile. But I, one, love the opportunity to be able to, to shout out about PharmaJet because you never know, maybe we're a perfect fit for somebody's investment interest. And if not, sometimes it leads to other people who, who want to connect us. So you've done an extraordinary job there. Next, um, my email address is pretty simple, heather.potters at pharmajet.com. And we are always open to including investors in whatever round may be open. Uh, currently, we have a round of up to 8 million and I've already placed 6.2 with more coming. So we do have some room. Um, that's a, a plan very specifically for um, making sure that we're firing on all cylinders and we start our uh, intradermal scale up. But we do actually have some larger investment needs as time goes on. Um, so if it's something where, where somebody has interest in investing or frankly, seeing if they can use our technology for collaborating with a life science company that has some, some, some injectable medicine candidates. You know, we're, we're very open and practical to, to wanting to get to know everyone. So send them all down. 
how are you planning on making this ubiquitous? Last question. And then <laughs> how are you planning on making this ubiquitous? I'm wondering how you are going to get in touch with every uh, ministry of health and get this in the hands of every medical practitioner in their, their countries. I, you know, it's a, it's a really good question. It's, it, frankly, it's a lot of work, but um, by extension, one, um, you know, it could be the, the hundredth monkey. We, we have published material that, that um, you know, it, there's kind of a chatter going on around, oh my gosh, did you see that? They can do this and they can do this and they can cut all your costs and make it simple and expensive, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think that there will be this tipping point that will be very helpful, but, but frankly, being able to have uh, collaboration, coordination with the World Health Organization, um, CDC, FDA, you know, the US agencies really has extended our reach to the point where we're just really frankly, you know, one phone call away from trying to meet with the right person in a country. And, and you know, the, the US Embassy, the commercial attaches have been enormously supportive of us um, in trying to facilitate that where we don't yet have a network. So we figured it out, um, but the world's a big place and it'll take me a little bit longer to make sure this is everywhere. <laughs> Definitely the, uh, it seems your sales process is very convoluted. Um, it takes a lot to, to, to get some of these uh, ministers of health on board. Uh, and then there's probably multiple layers of, of um, decision makers. And so I can't imagine the sales process that you guys are going through. Not only do you have to be, um, probably scientific in, in, you know, education wise, but also you have to be very sophisticated and understanding communication and saying the right things, at the right moments and all these things. So, yeah. uh, yeah. Place and culturally there's, there is a lot of difference for sure, but I think it's, you know, it's the, in, um, Oh, by the way, Zach, Zach works for you, right? Yeah. Zach Selch. I did. I did a podcast with him. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Well, see, there's more than more than Heather at Pharmajet. I had no idea. I was so interesting when I did the the podcast with him. He was talking about the different cultures and how they buy. Yes. <laughs> it yes. was really interesting. It was really really interesting. It was a, one of the most interesting podcasts that I had regarding just international sales. Yes. Uh, and I found I just recently so found. Yeah, yeah, and and that's you know part of the secret sauce, which is you have to know who you're talking to and, and why they would be interested and in, do you solve a, a need? Yeah. Cause it's not just being on the billboard. Uh, we don't, we don't do that actually. Um, no. It's really about addressing a, um, you know, scientific rigor and, and then addressing a key need for someone. Got it. Well, I don't know if you know this, but do you know there's, there's a lot of politicians and people in your space that are very active on LinkedIn? You know, I haven't connected with them on LinkedIn too much, but I do know that there's um, been some enormously helpful, you know, kind of Colorado uh, representatives and, and things. Um, so if there's someone out there that you have in mind that I should connect with, definitely <laughs> um, do that, I would be delighted. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to end this. We went on a little bit of a tangent and, uh, but uh, thank you so much, Heather, for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And I uh, look forward to conversing with you again soon. Hopefully we can yeah. do a podcast. All right. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate that. Uh, Take care.